Welcome to the 12th and final of the Marshall Graham interviews. These are interviews that I recorded for my Econ 265, the Economics of Racetrack Wagering Markets class at Rhodes College. And uh, with my final taping of my interview with Executive Director of the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation, Pat Cummings, I'm going to close the book on the interviews. So I hope you've enjoyed them. Please go back and take a listen to them. Uh, I'm just going to lay them out for you in order. I, I interviewed Randy Moss, Dick Girardi, Maury Wolf, Tom Vanberg, Kendrick Carmouche, Sean Borman, Liz Crow, Nick Tamro, Travis Stone, Dr. Bill Zemba, Jessica Tugwell, and again, Pat Cummings. So please, you can just go search through the In The Money Media Network's uh, podcast page. And if you missed any of them, please go back and give them a listen. I'm really proud of them, and I enjoyed recording them. Again, these last two, the interviews with Jessica and Pat, are bonus interviews. The previous 10 were from my class directly. So again, I thank you for tuning in for these last three months, and who knows, maybe we'll have a future series of the Marshall Graham interviews. I got to say, uh, these are like poor man's JK plus one, and, and who would believe it, but JK plus one is back. Uh, he's got an interview with John Sadler posted. He's got more to come, so it's a good time for me to, to walk off the stage and, and let the, let the big-time interviewer take over. Unfortunately, as of now, it doesn't look like I'm going to teach my Econ 265 class again until spring of 2026, so we're going to have quite a respite, so, uh, so I'll be laying a little bit low. Uh, maybe I'll come on and do some handicapping shows from time to time on uh, Pete's network. But again, I've very much enjoyed uh, sharing these interviews with you, and I hope you uh, get a chance to uh, complete the set. Once again, I want to thank Millridge Farm for their generous sponsorship of the Marshall Graham interviews, and Millridge Farm's Oscar performance has had a hell of a week. I was there at Sam Houston Race Park to see and the winner is take the Bob Bork Turf Mile. He's got a real future in the turf division. And on dirt, just uh, uh, today, they had red carpet ready win the forward gal. She looks like she has a, a big future. Could be anything, right? Maybe an Oaks Philly, depending on the route they go with her. Maybe a, uh, a, a Bells Philly. Anyway, uh, exciting young stallion Oscar performance stands for $20,000. So check him out. Also check out Aloha West. And Mill Ridge offers other services. If you want to board your broodmare, if you want to consign your horse with them, please check them out. And again, thanks for their sponsorship throughout this series. All right, I have Pat Cummings with me. Pat is uh, the executive director of the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation, was previously an executive with the Hong Kong Jockey Club and with Trackus, and has worked for racing, worked in racing for over 20 years. Most notably, high school classmate of Philly Joe. So first off, tell us what the Eagles, y'all going to win the Super Bowl? You know, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful, Marshall. Uh, I hope that we can go back and listen to this in a year from now and that my prediction will ring true. Uh, and that I, I do think they are, um, even though the early betting markets, as of when we're recording this, have, have shifted in their favor to, to make them the favorite. I, I think they're a better team than people are realizing because they, they did have a, a pretty good schedule. So, yeah, I, I think... I think they I think they will win. It does seem that fortune has gone their way this season. And so, I, you know, I think it that has. Is... It has. But, you know, the, the thing I think that's a little undeniable that people are are, are ignoring um, is that the Giants and the 49ers defense basically didn't have any real issues. And the 49ers defense was sensational. They still put up 31 on them, right? Um, so, 
you know, that they are finding a way to score. And it's not as if there were, you know, a couple interceptions returned or fumbles returned for touchdowns. You know, they, they, they pretty much pummeled uh, really, really good. The, the league's top defense. So uh, um, I hope, I hope this is, uh, I, I hope we can go back and, and, <laughs> Uh, listen to this and and realize that uh, that that was the uh, the right approach. But I'm I'm I am positive. Well, with the Sixers playing well too, we may have a Philadelphia Renaissance. I'm not I'm not sure I'm going to be able to stand that, but it's uh, going to be interesting to see. It's well, been a great us- year. We were in the World Series too, so you know, hope springs eternal. Uh, we just need to get over the top with with one of those other teams. Well, tell us a bit about your background in racing, how you got interested in racing, and and, and turn it into a career. Quite simply, uh, you know, I, I became obsessed with it as a child. Um, my parents got cable television, I want to say, in the late 1980s. Exactly when in there, I'm not sure. You know, somewhere around first or second grade. And I, you know, went from a kid that had 10 channels or whatever to, you know, 60. And one of those was a cable access channel that showed the races from Philly Park, now known as Parks Racing. And I was just kind of... I mean, obsessed sounds, you know, a little nutty, but, you know, fascinated and really engrossed by it. The thing was, I would read the sports page every morning before I went to school and you had the entries and you had picks and you had the results. And there was just something about it that that I found very intriguing from an early age and with no push from my parents, with no family interest in the sport. I, I was a sports nut in general. Uh, loved it, loved reading box scores from baseball, huge baseball fan. So there was something about it all that, that I found very attractive. And in my, um, never did anything in the sport other than go to the races every so often. My parents, um, we only lived, you know, 10 minutes from Philadelphia Park uh, racetrack. And so it was easy to get there. And then uh, between my first and second year undergrad, I got a job uh, at the track in the summer uh, working in the television department, basically as like a production assistant and uh, doing odd things, you know, audio control, video control for, for different, um, different elements of the television production that was there at the track. Uh, Got into the broadcasting side of it. I had done a lot of stuff in college on uh, play-by-play for football and basketball uh, and was really wanted to call races. It was a real dream of mine to do so. So did that and ended up becoming the backup uh, race caller there for 10 years. I probably called you know well over a thousand races in, in that period of time and had, had a lot of fun doing that. And I, I just basically kept racing on the side as a side hustle, so to speak, for a long time because I never really saw a way into it. But I, uh, after... Um, Getting out of uh, college, uh, 2002, which was a real tough time economically, I took a job with Vanguard, mutual fund company, and worked there seven years. Great time, great experience, was still kept racing on the side, but I I did my seven years. I got fully vested in all their tremendously valuable uh, retirement plan contributions, and I I decided to to pivot, and I went back to school uh, to get my MBA, went back full-time. And the goal was to pivot into the racing business. And so it's always been a presence in my life. And it's always been something I've, I've wanted to be, you know, always more involved in until I got to that point. And then I was like, all right, let's, you know, press forward and basically study the heck out of it, obsess over the data, the information, how races are run, 
Certainly, I've been a better over the years, sometimes more than others. It kind of comes and goes for a variety of reasons. And I think all of our betting lives have changed a little bit. And what we bet, how we bet, uh, where that started and where it's ended up. So, you know, I've gone on that journey as well. And, you know, I just have an absolute love and passion for all things related to the sport. But now I find myself far more involved in the regulatory side, in the business side, the numbers, uh, studying improvements and how we can make the sport better. And, you know, given all that passion, it's, it's a great thing and it's a fun thing. And I love what I do. So initially you were doing, you were doing race call. Did you ever think about a career in race calling? Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I thought about that a lot uh, in college. It, it was something I was considering pursuing and, and really tying it in with my other broadcast work. And this was, you know, mind you, in the, in the dawn of the internet era of internet streaming. So I, I was doing a lot of broadcast work for small college football and basketball, not just the school I was at, but, you know, nationally, really. Um, I even did the play-by-play for a, uh, a, the, the national internet broadcast of the Division Three football championship for, for the NCAA back in, I don't know, 2006 or seven. You know, so I was doing a lot of broadcasting work and it was something I had considered. But at the time, Keith Jones was the race caller at Parks. And he also had a side gig um, doing hockey announcing. Uh, he was the public address announcer for a minor league hockey team that was in Philadelphia. And he took a puck to the to the back of the neck, basically. And he had to have a bunch of work done and he was out for a while. And I ended up basically working a full-time job, doing a lot of traveling for that. And on the weekends, calling racing, I was would call Saturdays and Sundays. And then Ken Warkington from the Meadowlands would come down and call Mondays and Tuesdays. And, and I basically got a lot of race calling in in a short period of time. And by the end of that, I don't know, three-month period or so, where every weekend I was calling races and, and doing other things, I kind of realized it was not the direction I wanted to go uh, kind of long-term, even though I was in my mid twenties or so at the, at the point at that time, I, I didn't want to, it, it just wasn't something I, I got real long-term enjoyment out of, you know, the, the success and the enjoyment was temporary. Uh, I enjoyed calling races and I'm perfectly coherent and competent to do so, but you know, and if you threw me on the mic today, I could, I could get them around. There. Um, but uh, no, I, 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 you know, long-term I just didn't want to do that. Well, how did how did your interest in international racing come about? I mean, I think of you as you're my go-to guy when there's turf races, when you have international horses coming. I talked to you on big international race days. Uh, you initially started working for Trackus and for the Hong Kong Jockey Club, but did you always have an interest in international racing? Yeah, I, and I can't explain it. There, there was just something so novel and fascinating to me about it. And I've always been intrigued by, you know, international elements, politics, um, you just love traveling and have gotten all over the world, mostly because of racing, uh, which has been great. But, you know, back in the, the early 2000s, I started following the racing from Dubai. You know, I was fascinated by what was going on there. Cigar in the mid 90s was the first horse to go over there. And it was it was starting to catch on as a really big day of racing. And uh, I just actually realized that there was really no one covering to Dubai racing and, and Americans were starting to get access to bet on it. The world was really getting access to bet on it. They created a, a really big international carnival. And I kind of thought, well, this internet thing works. Um, 
it's it's a great way to get people, you know, to, to, to connect with people. And no one was covering it in a way that I thought it needed to be kind of full card analysis of the races. And, you know, I, I think one of the most fascinating things about horse racing is when you have horses, you have intersecting form lines, when you have horses that come from different parts of the world to try and figure out, you know, who's really the best. And Dubai was a place that that happened. You had dirt horses from Japan, the horses that went into Dubai from the U.S., occasionally some Europeans that would try the dirt. And, and, and it was, you know, seeing them together. Uh, and certainly it happened on turf. I was always more fascinated by the turf races of the Breeders' Cup than I was the dirt races because you had these foreign horses coming in. And ours is truly a very global sport from the pedigrees and the, the performances. And, and I just love that side of the game. And Dubai offered me an opportunity to put my mark and, and do something that others weren't doing. And I, I took that, you know, as we started a website pretty much in the mid 2000s, covering Dubai racing from afar mostly. And that was tremendously fun. And I met a ton of people uh, while traveling that I know still today and, and have for a long time and, you know, have basically become a part of my career. But, uh, you know, I, I met some of these people that were in Hong Kong years earlier and when I was in Hong Kong for my role with Trackus in 2014, they basically stopped me and said, hey, would you be interested in coming over here to run the public affairs division for racing? And you just, it's really hard to say no to the Hong Kong Jockey Club and that sort of setting and opportunity. So I took it and served a three-year contract and had an opportunity to stay for more, but um, I thought it was the right time to, to come back and, and basically take what was like a PhD in racing three years there and, and, and study the heck out of what they're doing and how they're doing it. And it was a tremendous experience. Now, when you went over there, did you speak the language or anything like that? No, not at all. And look, English gets you around Hong Kong. It might not get you where you exactly need to go every time. But when I was there and I went to the races and I was actually dealing with the media very early on, I realized I need to do something. I need to increase my my local language knowledge for no other reason than to just joke around with some of the press and and to put it in perspective you know horse racing is hong kong's biggest sport it's a city of seven eight million people and there's no real top level professional sport other than horse racing so i was offered and, and all executives that come into the club from a, from a, a overseas are offered uh, cantonese lessons if you want them the club will pay for it and so I, I had 20 weeks of private lessons in my office every Monday. And after about three or four lessons, it, Cantonese is tougher than, than Putonghua or what most of us tend to call Mandarin, but is, is more widely known as Putonghua uh, in China. You know, Cantonese has double the tones. It, it's, it's a real challenging language to learn. And I mean, I was looking at this textbook and, and, I'm realizing like the way in which they're writing things in English to tell you how the sound, they weren't actually matching up with what I was hearing. And I said, this is, this is useless. And I told the, the teacher, I said, look, I, I'm going to go get the race card and uh, you know, a, a book, basically like a media guide for racing. And cause it was in English and Canto. And I gave her a copy and I said, all right, tell me how you say these jockeys names in Cantonese. How do you say these horse names? And we went through the top 50 horses. And at one point I had them memorized. And, and you know, you learn things to just kind of joke around and get along. You know, I, I my Cantonese profanity is pretty good. You know, um, 
you, you just pick up on those things. So, you know, what people are saying and how to yell at photographers to tell them to slow down or stop or get out of the way, or let's move it along quicker and, and things like that. So it was a tremendous experience and, and, and I loved every minute of it, although it was, you know, incredibly intense. Hong Kong's a very intense place, no matter what you're doing. And it was, it was a great three years for that. So obviously Hong Kong racing has shaped a lot of your, your views of racing. And so, so first talk about Hong Kong racing itself, you know, what's different, what's unique and, and then talk about how, you know, it changed your philosophy about how a sport can be run and, and can be successful. Hong Kong racing was so substantial you know, there was a real concern that when there was reunification with China in 1997, that it was going to go away because gambling is not legal on the mainland. And, and that, that this reunification where the, the, there was a handover from the British and, and reunified with, with mainland China, that it was all just going to evaporate. And up until just a few days ago, actually, um, the Chinese New Year race meeting in January 2023, they had not had as much the highest handling day in Hong Kong racing history of total betting turnover was the last day under British rule. And there was a concern that, like I said, racing was going to go away. And they just finally got back to that figure on, on the Chinese New Year race day because it was the first day essentially in three years where they could have unlimited attendance at the races and, and people really came out in a big way. That is how meaningful it is that people showed up and cared that much on what they thought could have been the last day. But at the time, the leader of mainland China was Deng Xiaoping. Actually, I mean, it ended up being Zheng Zemin, but uh, Deng Xiaoping at the time when talking about it said, you know, uh, relative to what's going to happen in Hong Kong when, when it's reunified with the mainland is uh, the people will keep dancing and the horses will keep running, something to that effect. You know, it was it tapped directly into the spirit and the culture of Hong Kong. So it's, it's an incredibly intense experience working there, racing there every day in terms of betting is like Kentucky Derby day, right? It's, it's well over a hundred million a day on just the eight or nine races that are run at, uh, at the racetracks. Um, Happy Valley is probably the single greatest racing experience you can have in the world. I thought it was always amusing that it was one of the top tourist destinations in Hong Kong, considering it's only open 44 days a year. Uh, it was like number one or number two things to, must do in Hong Kong is a night at, at Happy Valley. And for the last, more or less the last three years, and that was a really impossible experience to have, which, you know, is, is terrible, but no one's been able to be there. So the world's re-engaging, which is great. But it is Hong Kong's only professional sporting outlet. And while racing has always been incredibly important and tied into the culture of Hong Kong, it hasn't always been what I would call great. And it became great. As the internet uh, came into being, there's always been an illicit market for gambling, of course, but that, that market really started to take off as the internet became more prominent. And what we saw in the mid-1990s through the end of British rule and then into um, you know, the early 2000s is that total betting turnover in Hong Kong was on the decline. And what was happening is offshore sites, uh, which still exist, were far more generous, rebating big customers. Customers were essentially kind of fleeing because there were better opportunities for them. Uh, things, the racing was generally not viewed as clean. There were a few scandals along the way, um, some race fixing scandals. And 
basically they, they cleaned it up. So while we have this notion, particularly here in the United States, and I'd say Europe has it too, that Hong Kong racing has always been just this tremendous business opportunity and, and, and you know huge numbers and it's fantastic and it's always growing. Not the case. It's always been important to Hong Kong and it's always had a reputation as kind of Hong Kong and horse racing go hand in hand, but it wasn't always as successful as it is now. The Hong Kong Jockey Club is organized as a nonprofit and all of the profit that they do accumulate through betting is turned back into Hong Kong in the form of charity contributions. So the Jockey Club is both the biggest taxpayer in Hong Kong individually on the duty paid on, on both horse racing and they have, they're the world's largest soccer bookmaker. Um, but all the profits that the club makes after they cover their expenses are turned over to charitable donations to Hong Kong, to, to hundreds, thousands probably of programs over the years. So much so that in a, a rating of the world's largest charitable benefactors, private benefactors, the, the Hong Kong Jockey Club was, I think, like fifth a couple of years ago, the last I had seen it. You know, you have like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Ford Foundation, Silicon Valley Foundation, Hong Kong Jockey Club. Pretty remarkable. I, I don't think people, uh, particularly outside of Hong Kong, necessarily realize that, but they are integral to Hong Kong life, uh, leisure, charity, um, looking after so many different causes. Um, and if you travel to Hong Kong, you'll see the signs everywhere, different buildings, uh, stadiums or, or gymnasiums and, and you know, senior centers. It, it's the Hong Kong Jockey Club. The title gets gets tagged on to so many things. Well, let's talk about the the racing because it's it's unique there. They have a closed set of horses and jockeys. I mean, how do they even sort of assemble their racing product? Yeah, so I mean, every horse is imported. Uh, so there's a challenge there. There is no breeding industry in Hong Kong. And as things have evolved, because of that, there's really not a need to have fillies and mares. Almost all of the horses that are racing there are, are or at least were, uh, male entires. Most of them end up as geldings. So I want to say a couple of years ago, just off the top of my head, there was something like 1,250 geldings, 57 colts, and two fillies, right? That's that, that's the way it was. Um, it was arranged. All of the horses are there uh, on track. Now, they did build a, a new training center in the mainland uh, about four hours away by by car, um, which is a bit of an expansion. And that kind of would bring us into a whole nother dialogue about the future of Hong Kong racing, which I won't go into now. But um, 88 race days a year. The average field size is about 12 and a half horses per race, which is particularly notable because half of the race days they run, they can't run more than 12 horses. So the, the average field size is greater than uh, than what half of the races can do in terms of uh, actual field size because they can only run 12 at Happy Valley and 14 at Sha Tin. Everything's essentially controlled by the club. They are the regulator and the operator. There's a bit of a wall between those two operations, but still, um, it can't work like that everywhere. You know, it is good to have regulatory independence, but in Hong Kong, it is the jockey club and it's been viewed that way. And, and they've done a tremendous job, particularly in the last two decades of managing that. But that means that the club uh, controls all of the veterinarians, both the, the attending vets, the essentially the, the horse's family doctor, and then the regulatory uh, side of the veterinarians. They control the pharmacy. So all of the feed 
uh, all of the medication that the horses receive has to come through a central pharmacy and is doled out by the club directly. They do all their own testing. You know, there is no other sporting event in the world where every participant goes through a pre-competition urine test on the day of racing, on the day of the competition, other than horse racing in Hong Kong. And I believe they do the same thing in Singapore, uh, or at least they did at one point in time. But pretty much that's it. Every comp, every competitor has to go through that test on the, the morning of racing. So I think that puts into perspective just how significant it is. And then, of course, they're also managing the betting. They're creating the, the, the product and you know, the pools are exceptional. They run all their own technology. They, they own their own tote operation. They don't really outsource that. All of that is essentially insourced and they manage it and look after it and make changes and adopt it. And it, it's a constant work in progress to ensure that things keep going the way they're going. And if they, they see the, the business slipping, uh, then they'll make some changes and adjustments to, to try and attract it. The biggest thing that Hong Kong horse racing has done in the last, I'd say, eight, uh, nine years has been the introduction of commingling. Of, of getting other markets to bet on their races, and that money goes direct into the Hong Kong pool. So we in America can sit here and, and stay up Saturday nights into Sunday mornings or wake up early on Wednesdays, and, and our bets on Hong Kong racing go directly into their pools, which are the world's largest per capita of any racing jurisdiction on the planet. So if you could take one thing from Hong Kong racing and apply it here, what would it be? I think the, the one thing I would take is the regulatory transparency. I think that, that to me is the, because it, it breeds all of the other positive elements, I think, in the sport, that good governance of racing equals good business, or maybe not directly, but it, it helps lead to good business. So, uh, for example, and this is, I think would be the best way to, to put it in, in, in frame. Yes, there's all the, the doping control mechanisms that exist, and the club has tremendous uh, hold on that, that no one really ever questions at all whether a horse has been treated with a performance-enhancing substance. That dialogue basically does not exist because of the club's controls on those, those measures. If there are incidents, and there have been, it's almost always due to contamination or a, a mistaken treatment where where horse A accidentally received horse B's treatment for that particular day. There have been, or, you know, or there was contaminated feed a couple of years back. So, so that element of the sport is is not even under discussion. No one talks about it uh, because there's no need to. There are no issues. Day in and day out, though, the coverage of racing by the stewards is just tremendous. The observation they have on every element of the race, the reporting details of horses' veterinary issues is, is fantastic. The, the data that is provided to the public, if a horse bleeds, it's reported. If a horse has thrown a shoe during the race, it is reported. If a horse comes back and is coughing or the, the jockey says oh, he was making some weird sounds during the race, they'll, they'll scope it and then they'll report it to the public. If there is interference, that discussion will be had and will be will be laid out in a report to the public to talk about what happened. If there's any concern over jockey performance and not trying to obtain the best possible placing with a particular horse, that gets covered by the stewards. That oversight and the engagement and transparency around it is really second to none. They've they've done a tremendous job with that from tip to tail, and and I think that helps 
the confidence of participants in the sport in every level, the horsemen themselves, the jockeys, the trainers, the owners, and, and certainly the betting public. And that confidence has been reflected in uh, tremendous support from the betting public over the years. Well, let's let's flip over to to U.S. racing, and I think it's very easy to go down the road of the struggles of of U.S. racing, especially over the last twenty years. But I, I do want to start off with some of the, some of the real positives, and and I guess two of the biggest victories over the last over the last decade or so. Obviously, we had the big withholding change with the IRS, which which added tremendous liquidity to the pools. But the, the two most recent ones are are breakage, which we've seen in Kentucky, breakage reform, and then the Category One stewarding. Uh, which I guess Oklahoma has finally uh, taken up. So let's start off with with breakage. Uh, I guess explain breakage to our listeners, and then talk about you know how the change occurred in Kentucky, right? How, how Kentucky, you know, one of the biggest betting states, of some one, some of the best racing. Uh, how how you, how the change got done, and, and how it's benefited players. So in 2018, uh, when Thoroughbred Idea Foundation was started, I was asked to come back from Hong Kong to run it. And we had really set out with four main ideas, four areas we wanted to increase the dialogue and hopefully lead to some positive change uh, in the sport. And one of those areas was focusing on pricing, making racing wagering more competitive. And what has happened in paramutual wagering, and it's basically been for the last uh, 10 uh, or excuse me, the last hundred years, essentially the, the lifespan of paramutual wagering in American racing is dividends are rounded down to the nearest 10 cent unit. So on every $1 that is bet, if the return on that would be $4.58, it's rounded down to four fifty, And then on a $2 bet, the payout is four fifty times two, $9. So that rounded down dividend uh, for the majority of, of the last hundred years was kept by the racetracks. Sometimes there was an agreement between the tracks and the horsemen's groups to split that money and share it with purses. As advanced deposit wagering or online betting companies came into the mix, the bet taker got to be the one that was holding that breakage, the rounding down of, of the dividend, where that rounding went they, they kept it, but it wasn't going to the customer's pockets. They weren't getting the, the entirety of their winning dividend back. Well, the total amount of money that is withheld is probably in the order of $50, 60000000 million a year. That's a lot of rounded down dividends. And our thought at the time in 2018 and up till now is that that money does the industry better back in the hands of horse players, pay them the full unit back. Well, no one had ever changed that rule uh, or the law, depending on where we are. Sometimes it's statutory, sometimes it's regulatory. But the the law in Kentucky had never been changed and no other state had changed it. And how we got to a state where we are rounding now to the nearest penny, nearest the lowest penny, but a full penny. But you know, if it, if the horse is, is 458, you get 458. That was much more a situation, uh, you know, a combination of effects, uh, a friendly legislature, uh, uh, some engaged leaders in that legislature, paramutual taxation reform is something that's been discussed in, in Kentucky for a long time. So Kentucky essentially had three different tax rates for different types of horse racing wagering. So the, uh, you know, if you were at the track, 
and you were making a bet on a live race, the tax on that live race bet was one half of 1%. If you were making a bet using a historical horse racing machine, which is like a slot machine, but essentially is the running, rerunning of horse races, and it's produced in a graphical display that, again, makes it akin to a horse or a slot machine, the taxation on that was 1.5%. If you were making a simulcast bet, so you're at Keeneland, but you're betting on a race at Gulfstream Park, that was 3%. So you had disparate tax rates and there had been this tremendous spread of historical horse racing machines in the state and they wanted to reform the taxes and make it all standard. So they did. Uh, and I, I previously said uh, one, uh, one half of 1% was for a, a live bet. I actually think that was for an ADW bet. So a, an online bet. If you were in person betting on a live race at Churchill for Churchill, that, that was one and a half percent. So basically the, the, the government said, let's standardize all of this and lock it in at one and a half percent. So no more. Uh, this is essentially a small, not really a small, but a, there was an increase in taxation to ADW customers in Kentucky because the, the, the tax rate on that went up. But uh, the taxes on other elements either got locked in and stayed the same or, or reduced. And in that legislation to, to do that, we got the breakage policy in place to, to reduce uh, penny breaks to the, or reduce breakage from the dime to the, to the lowest penny. And that was seen as a, something to give back to the horse players across the country who bet on racing in Kentucky. And again, you know, it, it's not perfect. The legislative process is, is you know, the, there are no, um, there are no shortcuts. Uh, it took a long time to, to get it done. I testified before a legislative committee in November of 21 as part of the hearings around this kind of last phase of, of the, this taxation task force, and uh, it worked out. And so now Kentucky literally pays you more on a winning paramutual bet in Kentucky. And that is far more, I think, than we can say for really any other development in payouts to all horse players. In basically 30-ish years, the, the, the nearest thing came to it when there was some reform of this in New York in the early 1990s, where they created a slightly different approach to breakage. And for payouts under $10, they, they rounded down to the lowest nickel. So on a $2 bet, you could get $410, $420, $430, $440, $450. Uh, and, and New York had been the only place in America where that was happening. But now Kentucky is the only place you get a penny. And we're hoping that others you know, move in that direction. And to be fair, the handle figures that we've seen from 2022, particularly in the latter months, this went into effect in July, are suggestive that Kentucky has actually held up pretty well with its handle. Now, I'm suggesting there's probably many other reasons for it, but it, it certainly doesn't hurt that customers who were betting on Kentucky racing are getting more back. And interestingly enough, it seems that handle on Kentucky races in the second half of 2022 was probably a bit stronger than it had been historically uh, compared to some other states. Well, and there's, look, there's a substantial impact here on the, on the effective takeout that players are paying, especially for low priced horses. So takeout is set, right? You know, maybe it's 16 or 18% on win wagers, but with breakage, you know, you often had under the old dime system, often had additional one, two, three percent that people weren't seeing. And this is effect, especially important on low on low priced horses. And it really, really prohibited anyone from 
from betting placer show. It never made any sense. And so yes. I think it's worth giving an example there, Marshall, right? So if you're if you're betting a horse to show and the takeout rate is well, I'm just gonna say 20%. You know, that's a pretty high show takeout rate, but it as an even number, it makes a little more sense. Right. If there's a hundred thousand dollars in that pool and there's a 20% takeout, that means there's eighty thousand dollars that can be paid back. If the rounding in the past would have taken a, a raw payout of $2.98 and rounded it down to 280. You have to think that your 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 profit on that $2 bet went from 80 cents to 98 cents, right? So we're talking about a difference of almost a 25% increase. It ends up being like a 23% increase in your profit. That's a substantial benefit. Now, to look at it another way, it's it's a tax, right? It's a decreased profit. It's an increase in takeout. If that money otherwise, if that 18 cents was getting retained by the bet taker, so a tremendous uh, step forward, I think, for uh, for racing, for customers, and and really to trying to drive the incentive to wager on racing in Kentucky because there is an added benefit that you're not getting somewhere else. And you know, early returns are looking very positive, uh, and I hope some others follow the lead. But but making the changes is not simple. Yeah, look, and there there will be those who downplay this, those who downplay the fact that it's a, it's ultimately a small change in pricing, and there were some compromises made along the lines. But you know, we just need the position to get our product priced more effectively, and we sh- will take any victory we can get. Right, and yeah, just, let's just keep moving towards getting more price more competitively and this is a much more equitable equitable way to do so and, and um, it's worth adding because uh, i did hear this from a couple people thinking that we were basically advocating for some sort of trade-off of give us breakage and it's okay if you raise the tax rate on adw players absolutely no truth to that whatsoever we had no input in any way shape or form on anything relative to tax rates on, on any of it. There was a taxation task force that was set out in some legislation that had been passed in early 2021. We had nothing to do with anything there. Essentially, all we had to do was advocating for a, an inclusion for penny breakage. And it really did make sense. And, and very thankful, I have to mention, you know, first off, Craig Burnick, founder of TIF, for getting this all started and being the driving force behind it. Adam Koenig, a former state representative in Kentucky who uh, just left that role in 2022. But to get that done and to get that in the legislation is a tremendous impact. And I can tell you right now, you know, we, we've we seen a, over $3 million in, gosh, seven, eight months or so that has gone back to horse players. And, and how many times has that same money churned through the system in terms of new handle? Um, it's impossible to really measure the full impact. Well, hopefully other states follow suit. Uh, Talk a little bit about stewarding. The U.S. primarily uses Category 2. You've been a big proponent of Category 1. So tell us about the difference between the two of them, why you prefer Category 1, and then ultimately, you know, the fact that that we have seen some movement in the direction of Category 1. This is really a story of, of kind of the evolution of rulemaking around sports. All sports. Uh, evolve the rules, tweak the rules, adjust the rules uh, for a variety of reasons. It could be that technology has gotten better. 
It could be that a new philosophy comes into equation to protect safety or to better the flow of the sport, the customer's expectations, the fans' expectations. And this really happens, I think, in all sports. We don't always realize it or think of it as such, but it does happen. We now see that the professional sports leagues have social media accounts getting out there and highlighting rule decisions, even criticisms or critiques of the rules. This was done well. This was not. This is something we have to work on. We're looking at evolving this, et cetera. So a lot of sports do that. And frankly, racing, as it related to how it judges interference in the course of a race in America, that had not been an area that's been touched for, for more or less a hundred years. So in the pre-television replay era, if we go back into the 1920s, for example, the stewards were asked to observe, was there a foul in the race? And if there was a foul, the horse that committed the foul would be thrown out and disqualified and placed last. There was no question as to whether or not that foul hurt the horse that suffered the foul's chances or cost that horse a placing. There was literally no wiggle room. They threw the horse out. So you could have two horses that were 15 lengths clear of the third placed horse. And in the course of the stretch run, the one horse bumps the second horse pretty clearly. If in the opinion of the stewards, a foul occurred, they could take the horse that caused the bump and throw them out and place them last. In the early 1930s, that evolved as some patrol footage came into to play very slowly, and this took 20 years to really spread across America. Uh, but the stewards were and evolved the rules and the state's adopted rules, which allowed the, the stewards to consider, did the foul cost the horse an opportunity for a better placing? And there was never any designation of whether or not that placing was in the money, you know, a top three finish, or an extra added prize money um, earning position. So that hypothetically in a, in a race, and now I'll get this as extreme as possible. So let's say there's a two mile race with 24 horses and the foul, the horse that eventually wins the race bumps the horse that finished 22nd, and that the foul happened uh, 10 seconds into the two-mile race. If the stewards believe that that foul cost that horse 21st place, then it is within their purview to demote that horse from first and place the horse uh, behind the one that it interfered with. So you'd go from first to 22nd, and the 22nd place finisher would be placed 21st. That is essentially the exact decision that happened in the Kentucky Derby in 2019. The point on the track was between the 516th and the quarter pole, but the horse that was affected was the 17th place finisher. And all the stewards had to believe is that long range toddy, the horse that was one of the horses that was fouled by maximum security and whose jockey claimed foul against maximum security in what I'll essentially call the most prestigious horse race in the world claimed foul against the winner. So it was 17th place against first place. And for that interference, the stewards believed that the 17th place finisher may could have been finished in 16th place. And so they demoted the winner and, and threw him out and put him into 17th place. Under the rules of racing, as they're written, 
perfectly legitimate decision. Should we still be looking at our rules and our, our races in that fashion without really considering, did that interference really affect the race overall? Uh, are we taking a, a legitimate win away from probably the best horse in the race? The thing is, Marshall, is that every other jurisdiction in the world, except the racing jurisdictions in North America, the states and provinces that uh, set the rules of racing and adjudicate them as such, every other jurisdiction in the world has adopted a different rule set that is a little bit more fair to the performance and takes into consideration how the race may have finished if that interference hadn't occurred. The, there was a difference assigned to these. So, so the, the existing North American standards were called category two and the rest of the standards that had been adopted by the rest of the racing world, I'm talking every European jurisdiction, every Asian jurisdiction, Austro-Asia as well, South America has gotten on board. Everyone is in alignment here on this now. And that is that if a horse interferes with another, the stewards are now asked to consider if that interference hadn't occurred, would the horse that suffered the interference have finished ahead of the horse that caused it, right? Was there an inevitability? Was this horse going to go by and run away and win the race? But if, if not for that interference, there would have been no change. And this uh, philosophy has spread across the world, and North America is really the last holdout. The thing is that all the other stewards in the rest of the world talk to the public about their decisions they explain them, they come out on camera, they write a report, they're very communicative. And even today, North America is not communicative, not even with the existing Category 2 standard. So our take was, we need our officials to be more transparent, more open. We need to pursue a final stage of global harmonization on this rule, because an American betting a race in England or South Africa or Hong Kong or Japan or Australia or New Zealand, which you can do, all of those customers are going to have their bets determined based on a Category 1 standard, except the bets here at home in North America are, are determined by, by different rules. The rules are all written differently across the states. The stewards uh, have not generally been trained to consider Category 1. It, it, it's really a very... It's been a, to say it's a dire situation makes it sound like it's worse than it is, but it's madness. Uh, it, it, it's gross inconsistency from state to state, race to race. And I heard one steward put it this way. The standard that we have in America today allows for inconsistency, whether it's real or perceived, because a horse that is dramatically interfered with may not get put up, and a horse that is only lightly interfered with may get taken down. That's the standard that we have in place today based on considering whether or not it cost a horse a better placing. So the category one rules we suggested, we're working with a lot of different jurisdictions on this. And we uh, had a conversation with Oklahoma in July of 2021. We we're actually talking about something else, a different project we were working on with the commission there. And it kind of led to this conversation about, you know, what if we start changing our rules on this? And I was like, let's go all for it. And in uh, November, excuse me, in February of 2022, they adopted the, became the first state in North America, the first jurisdiction, racing jurisdiction in North America to adopt the category one standard. And 
We're talking to some other jurisdictions now. They, they have uh, since adjudicated over 700 races under the uh, Category 1 standard. And so far, there have only been two demotions in Oklahoma from those. Actually, it's closer to 800 races. And in the previous period, uh, this is from September to December of 2022, there, there had been roughly 800 races and two demotions. But if we went back to 2021, over that same period, there were 17 demotions from almost exactly the same number of races. It goes to show you how, how things have changed. Now, the difference in 2022 is that the Oklahoma stewards at Remington Park have started to get on the microphone. And every time there is a, an inquiry or an objection to review the finish of a race, they get on and talk to the public in the minutes after they make their decision and explain why they did what they did based on what the rules are. And there's basically no one else in North America doing this. The stewards in Indiana have gotten on the microphone uh, and actually have gotten on camera to explain the decision, but it's pretty brief. The Oklahoma stewards are really doing it the international way, and we're hopeful that some other states will come on board. So the category one definitely sounds more favorable to both owners and horse players in that if a horse is going to win and it creates mild interference, they're going to be kept up. And so I view that as a big positive, but tell me a little bit about the, the concerns that this might lead to more reckless riding as, uh, you know, riders who, who are on the best horse, you know, may just barrel their way through knowing that they'll get kept up and keep the purse. So the how good do we news, police that? The good news is that in almost 800 races, there is literally no occurrence of that. So for, um, you know, I heard that decision and that dialogue for a long time. And I think we have a pretty decent sample size that that simply does not occur or has not occurred, meaning that any dangerous riding incidents that exist today and have existed for the last hundred years under the Category 2 provisions in place in America did so irrespective of how the races were being considered, right? They happened anyway. I can tell you that from those 800 races, there were no incidents of dangerous riding, period. There, there literally were none. There was uh, a provision added to the rule that basically says if there is dangerous riding, the stewards have it in their power to totally throw the offending horse out as if they weren't even in the race, basically just place them last. So that is a catch-all safety provision that exists. Uh, that exists the world over as well. It's part of the rule. But the multi-year sentiment I heard uh, and that you articulated there is is one that literally has not been proven from 800 races. And I think that, you know, as, as uh, the director of the California Horse Racing Board, Scott Cheney, said in a piece we just published on January 30th, he said the entire rest of the world and now one U.S. state have adopted Category 1 and the sky has not fallen. And he said, uh, it seems there's certainly an inevitability to this change coming to play. Uh, it's just a matter of when all the other states and provinces here will get on board. Well, I, you know, it's also a matter of stiff penalties, right? I mean, a, a rider under category one who commits a violation may get kept up, but they may end up getting days or fined, yeah. right? And so, you know, the, and the penalty gets more it, it is more directly assessed to the person whose actions 
were directly responsible for the outcome. The penalty is focused almost exclusively on the jockey. Now, you can argue unquestionably that no matter what the incident, someone is affected, someone is aggrieved, and uh, that this has an effect on betting. No argument. Absolutely true. But are the penalties commensurate with the incidents that occurred, right? You can't always have a, a universally fair outcome for everyone. So category two takes us from a point where literally everyone is penalized, owner, trainer, jockey, better by taking a horse down for uh, what it can be a very minor incident that may have had hardly any impact on the finish, but is still justifiable as a demotion under the rules to category one where, yes, there can be an incident, um, but we're typically just going to penalize the jockey here more often than not. And there was an incident at Will Rogers Downs on the quarter horse side of things in Oklahoma early on um, where there was just a horse that was kind of all over the place and there was interference that was suffered. There was no demotion to that horse, but the jockey did get 14 days, which uh, for those that follow racing in America, 14 day penalty for just one in-race incident is a pretty severe penalty. And as the stewards told me after that, uh, they kept them as straight as they could. And the riding improved because they knew straight up that the stewards weren't going to tolerate it. All right. Well, let's go into some of the, the negatives. Real handle and horse racing is down by 46% since 2005. So horse players have been disappearing in droves. Right. I mean, maybe the start of this is back with the legalization of the lottery in New Hampshire. Now we have casinos and, and even more recently sports betting. And yet on the flip side, you look at a maiden special weight at Churchill Downs. It was fifty thousand dollars in 2005. It's one hundred twenty thousand dollars now. That's up 57 percent after inflation. The purse handle ratio was at four percent in the peak in the peak of the sport during the 1960s. It was 7.5% in 2005. It's now 9.7%, a little bit down from a high of 10.6% the year before. You know, what can we do to stem the tide of the decline in betters and in part this disconnect between, you know, how the sport is doing in the broader market and then what we're feeling as horse players? So your question, Marshall, is what could be done? What 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 could we do as an, as an industry? My answer there's just two words, something, anything, literally, we need to do something or anything to change this because the answer is we have done nothing. So racetracks have generally been used as conduits to obtain additional licenses for added gaming, gambling, wagering of some type. And that is a 25 plus year evolution in, in America. It, it's probably almost 30 now. It's, I think it's 1995. So 28 years or so, I think is when Iowa and Delaware got uh, slots at racetracks. And then it moved to Woodbine in Canada and then really just kind of took off after that. West Virginia came on board and, and there was movement. So in that period of time, as you suggest, Horsemen have been paid handsomely for the rights to continue to operate racing at a place where they gave uh, an opportunity for additional gambling. So uh, we've seen purses up dramatically, handle down consistently. If we took a look at just one state on this, 
I think Pennsylvania probably is the greatest example of, of what is so, how, how things have changed. In about 16 and a half years of slot machines at racetracks in Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Racehorse Trust Fund received $3.6 billion for almost all purse distribution. Right? The vast majority of that $3.6 billion went to, to paying purses. What has not changed is anything on the racing wagering side of the business, right? To, to keep up with racing wagering. So the focus has all been on the additive gaming. So I think the way to think of this is, all right, so it started with slots. And in Pennsylvania, they introduced table games, poker, sports betting, iGaming, incredibly important in the pandemic years. Now, now think about it. Would those casinos at Pennsylvania racetracks have the same slot machines in 2023 that they introduced in 2006? Would they have the same type of games, the same promotions? No way. Absolutely not. The, the machines themselves have changed. They're upgraded. There's new interactions. There's new animations on them. There's new promos. There's new lines. There's new amounts. There's you know, The games are constantly changing um, with the customer base. And yet in horse racing, over that same period of time, I'm betting you could find almost exactly the same betting machines at, at Pennsylvania racetracks, the same bet types, same wager types, the same amounts. Nothing has changed on the racing side, whereas the casino side is continuously expanding and adjusting over time. So to me, the answer is do something, do anything. I think it helps to look at other industries. You know, my, my initial career started out on the investment side of the business uh, with Vanguard. And Vanguard was a mutual fund company. But if we think back to the history of investing, you know, there were stocks and bonds and CDs. You know, if, if you wanted to buy stock uh, 70 years ago, you got a physical certificate, right? And now that it's, you know, it's basically non-existent. Eventually, uh, mutual funds came into existence and they were actively traded mutual funds with, with managers, you know, stock picking in those funds. And then the index fund came into being and that dramatically changed the industry. And you know, then, then mutual funds evolved to offer these target date funds, right? Where, where you, know, you could buy one mutual fund and as you age and get closer to the year in the, in the fund, the, it will get automatically more conservative for you. So you don't have to do the rebalancing. And then exchange traded funds came into existence, right? And so you can essentially trade an entire mutual fund just like you could trade a stock. And on all of these trades and in the investment world, you had brokerage commissions on trading stocks. Now, if you did the inflation adjustment for how much a brokerage trade was 50 years ago to what a brokerage trade is now, I think it's going to look like the equivalent of maybe $200 to buy a couple shares of a stock to almost nothing today, right? It's been reverse inflation. It has gotten tremendously less expensive to do so. Our volume has, has increased dramatically, right? The market evolved. The products evolved with time and technology. Uh, I compare it a lot to, to personal entertainment. You know, you, you would go to the movie theater, you would watch television, 
Then they took the movie and they put it on a tape and you could go to a blockbuster to buy it uh, or, or to rent it and, and take it back. Don't forget to rewind. Be kind. Rewind. And then that, you know, changed the DVDs. And then there was Netflix and you didn't have to go to Blockbuster. You go to a, a pharmacy or a grocery store and you could get a, a DVD out of a out of a box or a mail order. And you could then you could go online and order it. And then Netflix decided, well, we're going to take that and we're, we're going to move into the streaming side of the business. And now there's multiple platforms that stream, right? The product has changed and evolved with technology, with consumer choices, with uh, access, this has all dramatically evolved and changed. Horse racing has not. The wagering menus are the same. The product presented to American customers on American races is almost unchanged in the last two decades. We could just say in, in, in the, the internet era of horse racing, the product we present to our customers remains unchanged. And you can't say that about almost every other consumer discretionary spending item over that same period of time. Now we deliver it a little better, right? So, so we have, we have done that. We've made it easier to physically place a bet, but the product itself has not really changed. And it's, it needs to be more about taking a product, taking a wagering product and reaching customers differently in a far more modern fashion with bets that they're accustomed to in other things. You know, all of this is also happening right at the same time that there's a tremendous explosion in legalized sports betting. So racing's product also needs to change with this. So you, you're, it, I mean, what would be your sort of change? If you had one of these you could implement, what would it be? So, I mean, it's, it's a gross oversimplification, but I, I really think we need a fixed odds betting and racing. And it's not to replace parimutuel wagering, it's to complement parimutuel wagering. It is to present a cust the, the customer with a, uh, a bet option uh, that is different than, than what we have for the last 100 plus years. It's more than just win, place, and show. You can create new markets with props. This is where all of the growth and the evolution has gone in all other sports betting uh, with this legalization. So we need to think we need to be doing that. But I think it will make paramutual wagering better. Uh, I think the competition is good for paramutual wagering, right? That, that we need someone to come in here. Because right now what we're seeing is, is a lot of the paramutual operators. Churchill Downs is very against the fixed odds evolution. Stronach, the first group, they, they tend to be not very supportive of its evolution in America, but they're happy to engage international customers with a fixed odds product on U.S. racing. They've been enjoying the spoils of a, a really, you know, a very limited marketplace, essentially the, the wagering oligarchy of, of horse racing. They've, they've led and, and, and enjoyed the spoils of that. I, I think, you know, the market needs to be, to be shaken up. And I think we can enliven paramutual betting if we start giving our customers more options and increase the competition thereof. What would you say to someone who's concerned about fixed odds shutting out people who are quote unquote winners. Yeah. I'll, I'll quote the words of our mutual friend, the great Roxy Roxborough, uh, the Las Vegas odds maker, Bon Vivant, and just all around good guy who, who told me once 
that for as long as they anyone has been taking bets on anything, winners have been getting shut out. You know, wagering is not a right. Paramutual wagering is such that all people who bet are allowed into the pool. So you know, it, it is unlimited wagering. Anyone can still get on paramutually. But as we've seen, there are plenty of, of people who, who do not like the way in which sports betting has um, you know, cracked down on people who get a little too successful. And it leads to bettors having to get creative I also think that part of the uh, part of the situation is is a result of of having so many operators in the space, right? So so we're kind of there's a, there's a overwhelming amount of of supply that is coming to the sports wagering marketplace, and it I think makes it a little bit easier sometimes for those operators to to trim uh, winners out. That that if we see a little bit more market consolidation over time, right? The margins are so tough for the sports betting operators right now. No one is making money in this current environment. The cost to acquire customers is so significant. But racing, I think, can, can provide a, an option. And we're going to see uh, some consolidation in that sports betting space uh, over the long term. And I think, realistically, the question needs to be asked. If you're not on sports betting platforms with a product, no matter what it is, uh, do you really exist as a legitimate wagering option? And, and racing needs to get itself on those platforms. I think it needs to embrace offering its product. And, and are some winners going to get shut out? I think so. It's, 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 we've seen it in every other space of sports betting. That is something that happens. But the people who talk about it, you know, there's, there's a tremendously um, self-congratulatory approach of I got shut out. It must mean I'm a winner. Uh, and maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but it is something that happens and it's a reality, but that's why it's great to have paramutual wagering still there. Well, I mean, I'd love to see exchange type wagering like Betfair, a national exchange. Uh, if you want to bet against a horse, if you don't like Golden Pound, the Breeders' Cup turf sprint, the only way to bet against them is to pick the winner or somehow figure out how to construct bets such to get the winner in. And so a national exchange in the early days of Betfair, it was a wonderful thing. I think, you know, the pricing of, of Betfair changed and um, uh, and it became a threat to bookmakers. And so it's, it's not what it once was. And I, I don't know how exchange experiments have gone initially in the U.S. and New Jersey. I don't think they've gone well, but I, I would think that's something that could be run through the industry yes. um, and would be a nice compliment. Yeah, I'm for it as well. And the reason that it did not work well is that there was almost no liquidity in New Jersey in the example that they had. They, they tried, they failed. I don't see fixed odds the same way, but I do think that if we can get to a healthy fixed odds environment, as healthy as it possibly could be, that a natural evolution off of that is the exchange. And, and a lot of the American experience, I think, has been far more compared to Europe because we just have a, a closer tie to Europe. The time works out better and, and we follow Europeans a little bit more. But the example that, that I think we should be following is that of Australia, because Australia was entirely paramutual and they, they introduced fixed odds betting. It was not only was it entirely paramutual, but there were multiple paramutual options, right? There were multiple totes in the different Australian provinces. But now, you know, fixed odds has become uh, the primary option, and the industry has generated far more revenue over time. The, the, the wagering on racing is growing. Prize money is growing in, in the current environment. It, it's probably the best 
best, uh, most progressive jurisdiction in the world. Easiest place to own a horse and get a piece of a horse. Wagering is increasing. Attention is increasing. Rights values are increasing tremendously. I think the Australian option is is one we need to be pursuing far more than uh, just sticking to our paramutual guns unnecessarily. So let's dive into pricing a little bit. And, and it's one thing I don't totally understand as far as racing is concerned. With the proliferation of gambling, first with lotteries and then casinos, and now with sports betting, you know, that competition should drive prices down. But if any, anything, prices have gone up. And, and let me give you these numbers. In 1958, the takeout rate in Maryland was 12%. In New York was 15%, Florida 15%, California 13%, Delaware 12%, New Jersey 13%, Michigan 12%. What's important to also note is in all of these states, nearly half or two-thirds of takeout was going back to the state in tax revenue. So we're in a situation now where takeout rates are higher, the amount that goes to the state is substantially lower, and we're facing more competition than ever. Now, as an economist, I've used very negatively, right? It, it's an indication to me that if our actors in our market, right, the tracks, the industry, believed that they should lower prices to increase revenues, they would do so, right? And to some extent, they do they do that with rebates. And so that's that's a little bit of a different argument. They, they do that for certain players, the rebates. But in their view, these in my, in my perception of this is that the prices have stayed high because their perception is that when they drop takeout, ultimately they get less revenue in. And so that's very discouraging. And perhaps it's their oversight looking at short run versus long run. But but we certainly haven't seen the budget prices that you would think would, would reflect how hyper-competitive the wagering dollar has become. It actually, I mean, it should seem obvious to economists anywhere, right? They look at the data. Total kind of sidebar on this, I, you know, I... I I have heard an argument recently that suggests that it's even possible that rebating in a paramutual environment where there's only one legal option to place a horse racing wager is potentially even in violation of of Sherman antitrust because of of resale price information and and the ability of um, that that there's only one market. And in order to, you know, to take uh, the product and resell it at different rates to different customers when they're all essentially ending up with the same odds could be, um, you know, there may be an opportunity to challenge it. Now that's a whole different story, but I thought it was interesting that there would be one way to quickly change the takeout situation and just lead us to a wholesale reduction. Look, the, the, the answer as to how it has gotten this way, Marshall, I think goes back to what are we focused on? Right. It has been easy to focus on just getting raw total handle figures in the door by focusing on the biggest players, giving them a substantial rebate. And those rebates you know, creep up over time uh, as play shifted online. We know for a fact that 20 years ago, total computer robotic wagering on American racing was 8% of handle. We know that. Today, we don't know exactly the number. I think it's in a ballpark of a third of total wagering. I think that the more exotic the wager is, the higher the mass market takeout rate is, the published takeout rate is, the higher the rebate, the more 
that a very price sensitive customer participates, the more those CRW customers are involved. It's bad news for racing to be less important to tax revenue. We need to be more important. And I think what we have done is we've seen trade-offs where while wagering is not as important, the purchasing of horses, the agribusiness, the agricultural economics that are driven by the horse trade help. The only problem is while the value on those horses has certainly increased, the total number that are being produced has decreased. We've seen a dramatic reduction in foal crop. In fact, the, the two things that have, have seemingly moved in tandem in the last 20 years is the decline in real total handle and the recline in real total foals bred, mares bred and foals produced. Now, there is no inflation on a foal production, um, right? A foal is a foal, but we've seen far fewer horses produced. They're racing less. There's a lot of really bearish indicators uh, around the sport, uh, and they continue to exist the problem is that the people who are still around in the sport are enjoying mostly the spoils thereof, right? So the, the big breeding farms have enjoyed the increased prices at auctions. They're the ones that are still out there and producing. The owners of horses today are enjoying more prize money than they've ever enjoyed before. But the trickle-down impact of horse racing from the better standpoint is just horrible unless you are one of maybe 20 big CRW groups, and then maybe the handful of 50 or 75 or 100 kind of mid-level CRW players out there in the world who are getting a, a pretty decent rebate and maybe turning a 2 or 3% profit on their horse play, whereas the big super CRWs may be 8 or 9 or 10% profit. But I think everybody else, the, the mainstream players are just getting killed and crushed their effective takeout rates are far higher than the published takeout rates. I have some data on this privately that suggests, you know, one track that has a 15% takeout rate. Mainstream customers at a major ADW were, were losing at a 43% rate over one entire year-long meet, all with 15% non-jackpot pick five payouts, right? So they were doing almost two times worse than the takeout rate. That is that is bad, particularly when the marketing of the sport has pushed those players into those low takeout, you know, believing that a low takeout, uh, low churn, you know, low win percentage bet is good for them as a, you know, as a mini lottery ticket, they're, they're getting crushed. And, and I think all of that is just a sign that we really need to start shaking things up in any way we can, because wagering on racing needs to be, it needs to be better than it has been. No, and I, I agree that with that wholeheartedly is that your multi-race wagers that are pushed are often the most complicated wagers. And uh, we have these big force out days. I guess you've talked about how on these big force out days that, you know, the computers and professional bettors crush it. And so our casual fans have a tricky time, you know, not only picking winners, that's one thing, but then putting together efficient tickets. And that's where the computer's uh, have real advantages. And now these are not, you know, this is not cheating. They're playing by the rules, right? And especially in multi-race wagers, you know, their advantage is they can really only see one race ahead in the double like we can, but they can create tickets that are much more efficient. They can upload them very quickly. Now that's a rule I'd like to see change for everybody. I'd like to have everybody be able to upload batch wagers. 
So I'd like more players to become computer players. That would be my solution. You could go the other direction and try to slow everyone down. It is unfair right now that computers can upload at rapid speeds. If I want to upload a ticket, right, with, you know, that I make in Excel with hundreds of different combinations, I can only upload three bets per second. That's not fair. So I would, I'm in of the, I'm in of the opinion that we should go in the direction of letting everyone batch bet. But the reality is people who are making caveman tickets, two or three pick fives playing into a force out where they perceive that they have an edge, right? Cause the mathematics of it are still getting killed. The argument that I hear um, kind of spewed back to me that if, if people were, trying to tell me what my position was on computer robotic wagering, the big massive syndicates that are betting, you know, in some cases, hundreds of millions and probably in one or two cases, you know, over a billion a year, some of these groups are close to it. The argument I hear is that people, people think I hate them. I want them gone. I want them eradicated from the sport. Nothing could be farther from the truth. I completely agree with you, Marshall, and that we need more, we need to give more players, more tools, more quality of access to our pools. And with that needs to come fixed odds betting, more wagering options, prop betting, eventually exchange betting, right? We need, we need a full-scale liberalization uh, of, of, of wagering options. But to think that we could run or turn our backs from a customer who's betting $900 million a year because we don't like that the effect that that customer has on everyone else and, and think that the answer is shut down that player entirely or, or get away from that or degrade their overall experience. That, that To me, it's just a non-starter. We need to find a way to elevate the entire experience for all players. We need to be creating more, quote unquote, smart players. We need to make our existing mass market customers smarter as well. We need to stop publishing tickets on TVG and on different track websites and, and, and uh, track feeds of saying, hey, here's my $72 pick four ticket, you know, that's four by three by two by three, I guess, 72 for a dollar. Um, you know, that, you know, highly inefficient methods for placing bets. Um, we are, for lack of a better word right now, we are bankrupting the experience and the, the reserves of our existing customers. We are leading them through inefficient wagering techniques and marketing them and you know, trying to say, this is the way to do it. This is how the experts are doing it. We're leading our customers down the wrong path. Uh, and we have been doing it successfully for, for the be better part of 20 years. You know, we need to find a way to not just tolerate, but to embrace those groups and to make the experience better for everyone. So does that potentially mean that we need to maybe consider doing what the New York Racing Association did and cut out the professional syndicates from two minutes to post onward in the wind pool? Yeah, I think that should be universally accepted, right? I think that's, that's a starting point. It doesn't mean we're going to do it in the other pools, but we need to, to, to in the interim, until we get that technology, until we let everybody have that access, until we're showing probable payouts in a much more timely fashion, until we expose and make more transparent the tools and resources that are given to those players, 
I think we need to take some interim steps to, to institute some guardrails to the experience for all customers. But, but we can't run away from technology. We can't, we can't want to back out billions of dollars from our, our wagering pools. We need to find a way to live with it, manage it, and make the experience better for everybody. No, I, I agree. I, I guess I do ask this broad question, right? Is that if I bet horse racing without a rebate, I'm getting, you know, in the best places, I'm getting 15, 16%. Worse, it's up to 30% in tries, right? If I even bet it with rebate and maybe getting even some of the best rebates, you know, maybe I can pair my takeout rate down to 8 to 10%. If I bet football, or if I bet sports, I'm getting four to five percent, and with price shopping, I can get it down to one or two percent. So, do I stand a better chance of winning as a sharp horse player or a square better? And that's something I've been grappling with. I don't know whether the answer isn't a square better, and that's problem. The line I've heard from some friends who have been on horse racing, sometimes have been on horse racing. For many years, in light of the options that they have today with sports betting, is I've loved racing, but I'm just better at sports betting. I, I I just I just do better, and I don't think the answer is necessarily that they do better. It's just that they lose less, and that is a long-term sustainability problem for horse racing. And the problem should not be viewed at strictly from a, a business sense or a are we sustaining our business? Are we keeping our customers? The answer is clearly no, right? Just look at the numbers. We've been losing customers for decades. And as I said earlier, we've done nothing. So we need to do something, anything to stem that tide. But within that, racing social license to operate is a real thing, as intangible as it sounds otherwise. And we have underestimated the power of the betters to be there to support horse racing long-term. That having a wide network of mainstream horse players is important for the long-term sustainability of horse racing. And if we are losing and have lost casual fans, we've not picked them up, we've not retained them. Some of our best customers have expired. They have not been replaced. If we get to a point where the mainstream participation in racing the, the number of square betters has, is just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And, and if this continues to happen, then eventually when the animal welfare interests come to try to eliminate racing in some way, shape or form, they're going to have a stronger case because there won't be as many people to talk about horse racing. So all that the industry has put into it from improving safety, we have improving the overall um, truly, I mean, you know, just the, the, the greater welfare of the sport, all of the focus on aftercare has been fantastic. It's been one of our greatest accomplishments in the last two decades. But uh, if we don't have ordinary fans to stand up for the sport, we have a problem. And we've been losing them through natural attrition and through competitive attrition over, over these years of legalization of other ways to enjoy your discretionary spending, and to enjoy wagering. And there's plenty of people who do. And when I hear that, I'm just a better sports better. I do better betting sports. I, I tend to think it's, it's 
not that they're technically doing better. It's they're, they're losing less. And, and that has a real long-term effect on the sport. Well, I, again, I, I think about the parallels to horse racing and dog racing, right? And it's a comfortable narrative to say that the animal rights people killed dog racing. But the reality is the fans disappeared. Dog racing is cleaner than horse racing. Dog racing has a tiny fraction of the breakdowns that horse racing has. Really, uh, hundred percent adoption. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent adoption. And these are things like the breakdown, the lower breakdown rates that uh, of horse racing compared to dog racing. That's unattainable, right? Dogs are just built better for what they're doing than horses. So that's that's unattainable. Certainly, we hope the hundred percent pet out or adoption rate is is attainable, but it's a lot more expensive. But dog racing died because they had no more fans, right? The casinos, lotteries. Those fans disappeared and they were never replaced. And so to me, that's the, exactly our concern. Even with the fact that we employ, you know, one person for every 1.7 horses and we're a huge industry, right? Ultimately, propping up an industry through government aid is not going to, is, it, you know, doesn't make any economic sense first, but is not going to save our sport. So anyway, anything, any, any other big thoughts on your mind, Pat? Look, I really think um, the greatest reason to be uh, bullish about the future of horse racing is that if we actually tried, it I don't think can be better. It will be better. We're not trying. Uh, we think we're trying. And, and we may uh, look at examples like, uh, you know, the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority and think okay. that, uh, that that is an example. Uh, it is. You know, I, I think the greatest... Um, the greatest influence of the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority is that Congress has essentially put its stamp on horse racing and said, this is okay. We need to take that and run with it. And we are. And I think all of the legal machinations around it, all the suits are both understandable and entirely predictable. This is not an easy lift. Something that has been a, a, a to totally, entirely state-focused issue to, to introduce this change, I think everything that we've seen happen uh, from the legal perspective has been almost entirely predictable. And I'm not going to offer any opinion one way, shape, or form as to whether those arguments are right or wrong. I just think it is um, understandable that these will have come to the fore. But again, not, not commenting on the merits of the rules themselves of what HISA has done, but it is a tremendous win for American horse racing, that the federal government is in some way, shape, or form endorsing a rule set that ties into how interstate horse racing and the wagering thereof is conducted. There may be opportunities to do more with it in the future. There are some, what I think uh, I've called side doors in the legislation that are vague and open-ended and could allow for you know, some more detail uh, in the future once they get through this multi-year effort, I think, on the anti-doping medication control issues and get them all sorted. Again, no opinions on, on the specifics thereof. It, it's, it looks difficult. It is difficult, all to be expected. But I think you know, federal oversight is, is better in some way, shape, or form than not. Better for the uh, totality of horse racing. And um how we, how we navigate these waters. I think they'll continue to be choppy for a little while, um, but I hope that uh, everybody that's involved uh, can, can move forward and work together 
but given the history of what we've had, uh, our experiences to date, I think, are, are pretty understandable and predictable. Well, we definitely need to do something different. And uniformity nationally is important. And so, you know, hopefully everyone can come together and Heisa and Horsemen can work together to ensure a great future for our sport. I, I do worry that Horsemen, Heisa, and horse players uh, have a very different top 10 list of problems with the sport. And at least so far, Heiss has tackled almost none of the top issues. Now they're finally getting the doping, but uh, but nothing else they've done it would be on my top 10. Yeah, so, I think the way to summarize that is integrity in the sport is not achieved solely through regulating what does or does not come out of a syringe. And, you know, it both, you know, it it that is inclusive of that topic, but it is not it is not exclusive in, in being the only thing that is part of the integrity of the sport. There are so many other things. And I hope that once this gets up and running uh, on this initial area, and my gosh, they took a big one, right, to, to, to launch it with, that was going to be very complex and challenging. But that some of the other issues that we discussed about the transparency, about the regulation of the sport, how information is reported to customers, uh, that all of that is on the table in future updates down the road. Well, again, thanks very much, Pat. Good luck with the Eagles this weekend and uh, next weekend. We got we got two weeks. Good luck <laughs> with the good luck with the Eagles and the Sixers down the road. Phillies this summer. Um, I'll save you. I'll save you singing the Eagles fight song, but fly Eagles fly. And uh, let's uh, yeah, and 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 looking forward to uh, continued interactions and. Uh, thanks for for all of your uh, dedication to the sport too, and, and your your level of participation. You are a, um, a a real leader. I know you don't recognize yourself as such, but you are. And uh, thanks for that. Well, I appreciate the kind words, and I'll see you next in Las Vegas.